0: Welcome to this topical Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Youth Minister Joseph Strong. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Well, tonight's passage, I've entitled Little Children. It is the last hour, and our main text is going to be in 1 John chapter 2, if you would like to turn there. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 is where we will pick up. And if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I um, encourage you guys to get used to using your Bible, highlight it, underline it. As Pastor Jim says all the time, make your Bible your best friend. In a world full of lies and deception, false doctrines and false teachings, which Jesus said was going to come up in the last days, it's important to cling to the truth in these days of deception. And so get used to your Bible. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and God, we thank you so much for everything that you provide for us. We thank you for the gift of salvation, Lord, for what you did for us on the cross two thousand years ago, laying down your life, taking on the sins of the world to provide forgiveness for the whole world, Lord. We we were supposed to be the ones on that cross for our sins, and you took our place. And so, God, we thank you for what you did on the cross, and and for uh, rising from the dead three days later. The crucifixion wouldn't mean anything had you not risen. And so we thank you, God, for your love for us, even though we were still sinners. And so, God, I pray over tonight, I pray for the gift of teaching, that your words would flow out of my mouth, that you would increase and I would decrease, that you would be exalted throughout this campus, God. We pray over the kids' life and the education building, Lord, that you would just bless the teachers and the kids, that they would leave this campus different. I pray that we in here would leave this campus different, changed, Lord. We don't want to go back the same way we were. We want to be changed, Lord. We want to encounter you, and we want to experience your glory and your awesomeness, God. And so we thank you for just who you are and just being so amazing and kind and merciful and gracious towards us, God. We don't deserve it, but you deserve all the glory. And so we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 First John, chapter 2, verse 15. John writes, he says, "'Do not love the world or the things in the world. "'If anyone loves the world, "'the love of the Father is not in him. "'For all that is in the world, "'the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, "'and the pride of life, "'is not of the Father, but is of the world. "'And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. "'But he who does the will of God abides forever. "'Little children, it is the last hour.' And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you having an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth." who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ he is antichrist who denies the father and the son whoever denies the son does not have the father either he who acknowledges the son has the father also therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning if what you heard from the beginning abides in you you also will be able in the son and in the father or you sorry you also will abide in the son and in the father Verse 25, and this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you, but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that, you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now, little children, abide in Him, that when He appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. All right, so back to verse 15. Um, It's interesting, seeing with all the uh, events going on in the world, with Afghanistan and our culture, we're seeing uh, a major shift uh, in the world. And uh, the truth is, is that we're at war, not merely a physical war, but a spiritual war. And we're seeing a culture that's consumed by the material things and passing pleasures uh, where they exchange the truth for the lie. We're seeing a culture abandon all reason, all logic, all common sense, and even science, even though they claim that science is on their side. They're abandoning science. There is a power that is deceiving people to where they see reason as a foe and the reality of things as a threat. A war has been waged for the souls of you and your children, and every day, the enemy is actively enticing you and your children to give your hearts to things, to material things, to idols, um, to exchange your, your love for God for those things. And we see here in John, where he says, not to love the things of the world or the world itself. There are lots of things in the world. Our culture is bent on trying to get you to spend money to be entertained, to watch the latest movies and subscribe to the newest streaming service where you'll waste the rest of your life binge-watching shows that have no real meaning or benefit to your life other than making you feel happy or laugh for a little bit. But in the end, what eternal weight does it have? Here, John urges us to not love the world, but what exactly is the world? The world when the Bible refers to it, is the satanic system that hates and opposes Christ. So, anytime you refer to the world, that's what the world is. That is what the world is. And John says not to love the things of the world either. Now, here in America, uh, we happen to live in a culture that is entertainment and sex saturated, much like the early church. Believe it or not, the only difference is that the early church had a much higher level of persecution. Um, and there's persecution happening in America to a certain degree, but nowhere near the same level that the early church had it. And uh, John says that if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, that's, a big, that's a big thing to say. <laughs> uh, for those that, that love the world and the things of it, what these people do is they substitute their relationship uh, with their maker and their redeemer for the passing pleasures, the temporary pleasures, the things that don't even last They substitute it for the passing pleasures of this life, and they're in danger. And if you're in that spot where you find yourself living in sin in the temporary pleasures of this world, it's a trap. (laughs) Get out of there. Get out. Um, All that is in this world, as he says in verse 15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Um, verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So a lot of people think that fortunately, a lot of people think the world's permanent. They think it's going to continue on as it always has, right? They think it's just going to be there. A lot of people think America is just going to be there. You know, they think it's just going to continue on, even though it may evolve into something else. Um, but the truth is, is that it's going to pass away. It's temporary. And, uh, that it's temporary along with the lusts of the world, the, the enticements of the world. But we, hear, we see here, he says, he who does the will of God abides forever. And like, this is a promise. There is nothing in the world that will satisfy you. The world tries so hard to entice you and to woo you into its pleasures, but it deceives you into thinking that those things are always gonna be there. And they won't, it's a sham. <laughs> it, they won't last forever. The only thing that remains is God. He's the only one capable of satisfying your soul. Entertainment comes and goes. Sex comes and goes. Entertainment, uh, money comes and goes. Everything fades, but he remains. He stays the same always. And we see here that those who do his will abides forever. Verse 18, John says this. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By which we know that it is the last hour. John here refers to his readers as little children. This is a, a term of endearment because um, he's not writing to little children, although they're included if they're reading it. But this is a term of endearment, and you see this all throughout uh, his letters. Little, he refers to his readers as little children. But with all seriousness, he says, It is the last hour. And as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And isn't it interesting how so many back then, we read throughout the New Testament, people like Paul, Peter, they mentioned that they're in the last days. And they thought that, they, they believed that Christ re, Christ's return was soon, like it was coming very soon. But they said they were in the last days. That was 2,000 years ago. Uh, so question a lot of people ask, well, how is it that they were in the last days? I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. Here are 2,000 years later. You know, last days is 2,000 years, kind of a long time, right? Well, that's from our perspective, Um, because we have to ask, well, what does the last days really mean? Um, Last days, it means that there are less days ahead of you than there are behind you. Um, Let's say, let's say all of human history Let's put it all from Monday to Friday, all right? Just let's put all of human history. Let's say it's a five-day frame, Monday through Friday. All right, time begins Monday, history, do-do-do-do. Wednesday is the middle, right? That's hump day. The last days would begin Thursday morning because there are now less days ahead of you than there are behind you, all right? So that means there's less time ahead of you than there are behind you, which means it's the last, this is it. This is all we have left. The last days. Now, keep in mind, they said it was the last days 2,000 years ago. If that was Thursday morning, if that's Thursday morning, we're like Friday evening, and it's the last hour. (laughs) All right, It's the last hour. Uh, We're here 2,000 years later from that moment. And John even says it is the last hour. What's John saying? What he's simply saying is time is running out fast we're running out of time it's the last hour um the antichrist is coming and here you see it's capitalized the antichrist is coming but then he says in lowercase you notice even now many antichrists are coming and here he's referring to if you keep reading if you read all of john he's referring to the spirit those who have the spirit of antichrist and we'll we'll touch on that in a second um But he's saying, look, we're running out of time. Don't get caught up in the temporary pleasures of this world. It's a trap. Don't love the things of the world. Don't fall into that. It's a trap because Christ's return is coming. It's soon. It is so soon. And remember, we're at war. We're fighting. We're We're not fighting with guns. We're not fighting with artillery or nuclear bombs. This war is a spiritual war. And... The enemy is doing everything he, they can to get you in a daze and distracted from the spiritual reality that surrounds us every second of the day. Uh, 2 Timothy, there we go. 2 Timothy 2, 3, 4, he says this, and this is actually Paul. He's writing, this is a letter to Timothy. He says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged, key word there, in warfare. Another key word, entangles himself in, with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Don't get entangled into the things of this life. We're engaged in warfare. And if you're entangled with the things of this life in the heat of the battle, you're completely oblivious to everything that's going on around us. I mean, just to put yourself in a real war scene, for example, and there's a, you're in the heat of battle. There's bullets flying, and you just find yourself dazed and like, ooh, distracted by something that doesn't even matter, right? You're going to get shot, <laughs> right? You're going to get injured. Something. It's it's a bad recipe for disaster when you're not aware of the reality that's all around us. All the things that are political, all the chaos in Afghanistan, within our own country, the turmoil. Where like a lot of people think it's merely physical, it's not. It, this is a this is all spiritual. I mean, when common sense and logic and reason are just they they the people look at those as like as they treat it as it's a as, as if an en- it's a it's an enemy, <laughs> you know. They they abandon it, and we know that <laughs> people are being deceived. And Jesus said. This, these things were going to happen. So like as Matt was praying earlier, we shouldn't be surprised. You know? And for us, seeing our nation tanking the way it is, for us, it's like, whoa, we, we, we knew it was coming, but we didn't, we didn't expect it, you know, to see it happening in the way. It in, and now we're seeing the, everything that's been prophesied in Daniel and Revelation, all the prophecies of, uh, leading up to the return of Christ, it's all coming together. Right? And so it's, we should be excited. But at the same time, the enemy is going to work harder to try to entice you, to try to distract you, entangle you in the affairs of this life when we, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, need to be actively engaged in this war. So if you find yourself being lullaby to sleep and hallucinating and being distracted by the the things of this life, you've got to snap out of it. Wake up. This is your wake-up call because the enemy is targeting you. And he's targeting all those around you, trying to lead people astray away from the gospel. When it is our God, Jesus commanded us to go out and be witnesses, to go out and make disciples. So, what are we doing? <laughs> are we too busy binging shows and things that really don't matter? I'm not saying watching a movie here and there or a TV shows bad or not. I'm not, you know, not saying that. But if that's what consumes all your time, and you're like. Oh, I don't have time to read my Bible, or I don't have time to go out and share the gospel with my neighbor, or, and we're we've, yet we find ourselves wasting so much time. That's how the enemy works, <laughs> and we have to be aware of that. You say, well, how do I fight in the spiritual war? Glad you asked. Let's turn to Galatians chapter six. No, sorry, Ephesians chapter six. Ephesians chapter six. Because Paul lists here exactly how to do that. Ephesians chapter. Six. There we go. I've got the slide for you guys. Ephesians six, and of verse ten, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and here he. Uh, this is towards the end of his letter. He says, "Finally, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might." So, are we being strong in our might? What? Are we being strong in the power of of, of our might? No, we're being strong in the power of his might because there's nothing we can do. We're powerless without him. The battle is his. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Verse 14, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Okay, we need that, truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Not our righteousness, his righteousness. Because we're not, Bible's clear that we we and ourselves are not righteous. (laughs) All right, verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Third thing. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all fiery darts of the wicked one. In verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So the word of God is our sword, right? That is our offense and defense weapon, right? But a lot of people think that that's our only weapon when a lot of people overlook what Paul says right after this, verse 18, Praying always with all prayer and supplication and all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. So prayer, that is our other uh, weapon, right? And what is prayer? Often in a lot of the modern warfares, when you are stuck in a situation and you can't get out, you pull out your radio and call in the artillery, right? That's what prayer is. We're calling in the naval artillery to unleash all its fury and power on the enemy, right? Because, I mean, think about this. God is all-powerful. I mean, he makes our naval ships look like little pipsqueaks. Like, they're nothing, right? God is all-powerful. And when we call on him, there is some serious, serious power when we pray. And so how do we fight? Reading your word, spending time in your word, memorizing the word. Remember, this is our sword. And prayer. Always, always be in prayer every day, every day. Um, so back in First John, let's go and turn back there. We hear, we see the whole armor of God laid out in Ephesians, our weapons, the sword of the Spirit, which is our Bibles, and prayer. And, uh, and another thing too, if you notice in what, in what we just read in Ephesians, he says, be watchful, you know, there's tons of times in, in the Bible where when they say prayer, it always comes with pray and be watchful, right? Be awake and pray. Like, be like, aware of your surroundings that's going on. And so um, we need to be watchful at the same time. Um, let's see. I lost my spot here on my notes. All right, so you can't fight in a war that you don't even know is happening. You can't fight in a war when your life is fixed, On that pointless TV show you've been binging or that football team you've been worshiping or that politician you've been praising or slandering uh, or that pornography you've been in chains to or that alcohol that has you in its grip. And look, a lot of people think slavery in our nation is over, but it's not. One, uh, One Christian rapper once said this. He said, Egypt is still in our nation. It just changes faces. I mean, think about that. When you love the world and the things of the world, you become enslaved to it. And you may not even know it. It deceives you. And as Christians, here's the thing. We've already been set free. We've been set free as Christians from those chains. We're free from sin and death. And now we're engaged in a war that isn't fought for victory. It's fought from victory. Because Christ, the victory's already been done. And so, because of Christ and what he did on the cross and the, the resurrection, which is the pivotal moment. Um, so if it's the last hour, time is running out. John is saying, don't substitute your love for the world for your love for God. He says, look, we know it's the last hour because the Antichrist is coming and many Antichrists have come. So verse 19, back in First John, he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest; that none of them were of us. So these these people that are called uh, antichrists, these are people who were not of the church, but pretended to be for a time. He says, "Look, they were not real believers to begin with. Uh, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. They would have still been here with us in, in this spiritual warfare, this fight. But they left for the passing pleasures of this world." But he says, but they went out that they might be known that none of them were of us. Verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So he says, look, you, believer, right? You have an anointing from the Holy One. In other words, you've been set apart right? You've been, you've been set apart for this purpose. You have an anointing from the Holy One. He's saying, look, I'm not writing this to you because you aren't Christians and that you don't know the truth. He says, rather, I'm writing this because you're Christians, because you know it. And he says that no lie is of the truth. In other words, there's something is either true or it isn't. And these Christians are able to decipher to know what is true and what's not because, as you're saying, they've been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy Spirit's there to let them know if they're listening to something that's false doctrine, that's heresy, right? Holy Spirit's there to say, hey, uh, this person's a false teacher or this person's teaching something that's not true at all, you know? And so he's saying, look, you believer, you have that with you. You have the Holy One, the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus is the Messiah. That's what what Christ means. Christ is not... um, His name is not a last name, it's a title. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, or the Messiah, uh, um, which means the anointed one. And so he says, who is a liar, but he who who denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is antichrist who denies the father and the son. Whoever denies the son, Jesus, whoever denies him does not have the father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Here we see who has the spirit of Antichrist. They aren't, these people aren't the Antichrist, but they have what John calls in chapter 4, 1 John, you can read it on your own. He says, the spirit of Antichrist. And here he says, it's whoever denies the Father and the Son. Right? Those are the people that have the spirit of Antichrist. And uh, whoever denies the Son... Does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let's turn to John, so not first John, but the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John fourteen, verse verse seven. Jesus is talking. He says, This if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen him. So he's saying, Look. Jesus is talking, he says, if you know me, you know God. Like, you know God. You know the Father. Amen. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. That, that would have just blown my mind, right? But here we have the disciples, so I just kind of went whoop right over their heads. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? And then Jesus says this, he who has seen me Has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? In chapter 10, John says, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10 The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So here we see Jesus and the, and, and the Father are one. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be God. Right? You go back to John chapter 1. Amen. Let's turn to John chapter 1 real quick. I wasn't planning on this, but let's look at John chapter 1. Because a lot of people don't think Jesus is God. But if you look at John 1, it's crystal clear. John 1, very beginning of the Gospel of John. John 1 says, uh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and with him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, didn't understand it. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe. He was, not the, he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Here's referring to John the Baptist. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God. Which is funny. I wasn't planning on sharing this text, but we're going to be talking about that same thing. So that's the Holy Spirit for you guys. Uh, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not you who saves yourself. You can't be born again with your own power. It's the power of God. But then look at this, verse 14. And the word, same word which was spoken just a few verses ago, where John says the word was God. In the beginning was the word Right? The word was with God. The word was God. He says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said. Amen. So, he and the Father are one, right? He who denies the Son doesn't have the Father. He who denies the Father doesn't have the Son. And so, back in 1 John, back to 1 John, Anyone who denies either of them, according to John, is has the spirit of Antichrist. First John, I should have left my finger there. There we go. Verse uh, twenty-four. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Um, so, here, everything you heard about the truth uh, that John's referring to is, is since whenever you first heard the gospel. Uh, for some of you, it was when uh, it was in your adult years that you first heard it. For some of you, maybe it was when you were in Sunday school as a kid when you heard the gospel, or maybe it was when you were in youth group. Um, and you know which group of people are being targeted the most in the world? the young people. It's the youth. They're the ones that the world targets the most to seduce them and entice them away from the truth. Similar to uh, an anglerfish enticing its prey. You guys know what an anglerfish is? Well, if you Google it, it is a freaky looking thing. If you've seen Finding Nemo, you know what an anglerfish is because it's that thing where Nemo and Dory are in the, tra- you know, it's all dark and they see that little glowing light thing and they're all like, ooh, what's this? And they go to it and they get real close and then the fish reveals itself and it's all huge freaky teeth with big eyes. like, And it's a, those are real things. You can Google it. They're, they're scary. But that's what they do. They entice their prey with a little shiny light in the darkness. And so um, that's kind of how the world... Uh, tries to attract not just us, but the youth, everyone. So young Christians are in this war too. Your children in the Sunday school are soldiers just like you. They need to be trained. They need to be trained in how to fight in this war. Proverbs 22, 6 says this, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now the key word here is train. Train. And a lot of us, I think we kind of overlooked that word quite a bit. Um, a lot of us haven't really taken time to really think about what that entails. What does training mean? What does that look like? My question to you is: uh, Are you or have or are are you train t- training your children, your grandchildren? Do you actually literally train them? Because there seems to be a misunderstanding sometimes. Not, I'm not saying here at this church per se, although it has happened, but in the church in America at large, a lot of people think that it's the youth pastor or the Sunday school teacher, it's their responsibility, their sole responsibility to train up the kids. And the parents are kind of just like, oh, drop the kids off at youth group. All right, we're off. Pew. You know, let, the, let them do all that training stuff and I'll just pick them up and talk about how everything went and how everything went well. And so that's not the case. The, the sole responsibility of training is the parent, the grandparent, the guardian, whoever that, that is, right? And even if you don't have kids, right? If you have any kind of influence over youth, train them, <laughs> right? Show them the, the way, the truth. I've seen, sadly, I've seen too many of my fellow peers from youth group depart from the faith. When I was in youth group, a lot of the people I was in youth group with, a lot of them are sadly gone. I mean, they're, they're not gone, but like they left the faith, like, they're often things of the world, the pleasures of this world, and it's heartbreaking, you know? And my question is did, did the parents, like, what, what happened here? What happened? Did the parents literally train them? And I say the word literally because a lot of people think that if they just take them to church at least once a week and they pray before every meal, um, a lot of people will kind of check that off as training. But training a child in the way he should go is showing them how to pray, uh, how to fight temptations, how to share the gospel with someone, showing them how to defend their faith, showing them why they believe what they believe, showing them how to tell the difference between truth and lies, and why we even do that. The list of training goes on and on and on. But these, here's the thing. These things are basic things that every Christian should know how to do. These are the, ba- these are the basics that every Christian must know. I'm not saying you have to have a Ph.D. in theology or apologetics or philosophy. You don't have to know a whole lot about these things, although they're important. But just train them up in what you know. Whatever you know, just train them, right? Uh, whatever you, you know how to do, how to live as a Christian, train them up in that, right? Do the, you know, all you can do is the best you can, right? I'm not saying, again, you don't have to know everything. And I'm not saying you're going to be perfect because there is no perfect parent, right? And keep in mind, too, children have their own free will, So I'm not saying if they leave, it's all your fault after you train them or anything like that because remember, they are also responsible for their own decisions once they reach that age of accountability. And so you'll learn as you go, but with whatever you know how to do, teach them and train them. Every Christian must know the basics. But again, it's sad because most parents in our country send their kids to churches that are focused on entertaining their kids instead of training them. Um, adults themselves go to churches to be entertained instead of trained and taught, and they lack the basics. They don't know how to share the gospel or defend their faith, or sadly, many of them don't even pray. And we wonder why the the statistics show that eight out of ten people leave the church when they graduate high school. Let me say that again. Eight out of ten people, once they graduate high school, never come back to church. That is the statistic. Eight out of 10 are gone. And we wonder why. <laughs> like, why? why is this happening? Why is my child no longer in the faith, you know? And a lot of times we, have, we look back, well, how did we, did we train them? Did we train them, right? And, uh, and maybe I'm talking, maybe you're here, maybe your child is a prodigal son and maybe you're looking back, man, I didn't do, you know, I didn't do a good job. I'm not here to bring condemnation or any guilt trip or nothing like that. That's not, what I, that's not the point here, right? You still have an influence over them, They're still your child, as far as I'm concerned. So it's not too late, you know? And all you can do is the best you can do. What's in the past, don't look back with regret. It's in the past. God's forgiven you of all your sins, all your mistakes, all that. It's forgiven at the cross. So just go forward now and do with what you have, the time you have now. Train your child. For me, when Pastor Jim asked me to be a part of the youth ministry here at Calvary, my heart, the high school team, the junior high team, our heart... Our desire has been always to train students, to train, to train, to train students in the way they should go so when they're old, they won't leave the faith. Um, and because uh, I'm, I'm tired of the statistics, seeing 8 out of 10, 8 out of 10. I'm tired of that. I'm tired of seeing high school kids when they graduate and they're just, they go to college and they're off doing things that <laughs> will only bring harm. It, it hurts, it's, it's heartbreaking. And that's our focus as a youth ministry, to train and equip students for the, the works of the ministry. And uh, you as the parent, the grandparent, guardian, whatever you are, it, it ought to be your goal to train your child so that they know how to fight in this war and to avoid the temptations of this world or at least how to fight them, how to fight these temptations. Because the world is fighting for their attention. There was a study done, um, ABC News, which isn't always the best news source, but in this case... This is, they based this off a study. It says, t- this is the headline, teens spend more than seven hours on screens for entertainment a day. This was a study done by another, per- another group of people. Um, and if you notice, I don't know if you can read it or not, it says the amount of screen time does not include schoolwork, according to the report. And if you look below, the study finds teen screen time doubled over the last four years. So at this rate, and this was a 2019 study, by the way, Here we are 20, 20, 21, two years from that time. You know, how much exponentially has that increased with the rate it's been going? Seven hours a day. Think about that. There's 12 hours of sunlight, (laughs) right? 12 hours of sunlight. That's it. Seven hours is on it just for entertainment. That's not schoolwork or education purposes. That's social media. That is things like TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, all the other hundreds of social media things and games that are out there at their disposal. And I'm not saying that those things are all bad, but you as a parent have to be careful with what's on those things because that is the primary means right now that the world is getting to them, is through their screen, whether it's an iPad, a phone, a laptop, the internet, right? Social media, that's how it's getting its message across to them. And that's where the enticement comes in. Um, And that's just... Entertainment, that's just social media and games and stuff. That's just entertainment, right? Social media, games. It's not to mention that the average age of a child's first exposure to pornography is 8 to 11 years old. The average age of exposure. One in 10 children under the age, under the age of 10 years old have seen porn. One out of every 10. That's pretty staggering. One out of every 10. All of this is from or introduced to them through the phone, whether it's an accidental click or there's something on their social media, like pops up, boom. It's like a hook, right? Oh, what's this? Or they accidentally click it and boom, it's there, right? But that's how the world does it, you know, in uh, and, and the age that we live in. So be careful with giving your child a phone. Do it at the appropriate age. But when you do give it to them, make sure they're trained up first train them first because if you don't train them on what's out there on how to combat or what to expect when those things come because here's the thing we can't always shelter our kids entirely from the world because it's only a matter of time until they have to go and be on their own and then they, they're hit with it right we don't want to not train them and shelter them this whole time and then let them go and they're like oh my goodness what is all this stuff and then boom the world's there and they're like man what what do i believe is what i what i was raised with is that even true and they're questioning and they're doubting and it's 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 tough right but as parents, if we train them before all that, tell them what to expect. Hey, here's something you're going to encounter. You're going to encounter this belief. You're going to encounter this belief. You're going to encounter this. And here's why it's not true. And here's why the Bible is true, right? We can't just tell them that the Bible's true. We need to tell them why it's true, right? Take them to the evidence, historical evidence. That's what, that is what drew me back to the Bible because I was raised up in a Christian household um, this is a long story short, grew up in a Christian household, graduated high school, and I was like, man, is this Bible thing even real? Because if it's not real, it's just fairy tales. And if it's just fairy tales, I'm going to go live however I want to live. But if it's real, that's a big deal. That's going to change the fact I, the way I live. And so I did my research. I looked into the historical evidence. I looked into atheism, the Jehovah Witnesses, Mormonism, all these different beliefs and things. And, and the Bible is the only one that has the scientific philosophical historical evidence to back this book up and i'm still learning more evidence because there's so much more that i i can't even it's just overwhelming honestly and so encourage your your children to do their own research show them how to research how to look up evidence right how to to look at things and not just look at something and just believe it at face value right have them look into okay well is this true why is it true Right? Critical thinking. That's what that's called. Have them to think for themselves. And so that's part of the training. Because when they, again, they counter the world, they're going to be bombarded with all these things. Uh, in our ALA class, uh, American Leadership Academy, which down the street on, I forget, uh, Queen Creek? No, Chandler Heights and Hawes, I believe. They bus over some students over for like a, a Bible class we do every week. And so what we're doing—I teach Wednesday mornings. What we do, what we're going over this year, we're going over the six major worldviews, and that's, that's so we're talking about Christianity, Islam, New Spirituality, which is also called the New Age stuff, New Age. We're talking about secularism, uh, Marxism, and postmodernism. Those are the six big worldviews. And some of you probably don't even know what that is, and that's okay. But what we're doing, what I'm doing with the youth, with the ALA class, I'm showing them, look, these are the, big, the biggest worldviews you're going to encounter in college, your workforce, wherever you go, you're going to encounter one of these. And so what I'm doing is educating them what they believe. What is it? What, do, what are these people all about? And how does that con- compare and contrast with the Bible, the truth? How to discern truth from lying. And so when they encounter these people, when they encounter a Muslim, they encounter someone who's new age or who's a, a Marxist or whatever it is, they'll know how to talk to them. They'll know how to share the gospel with them and they'll know how to defend and explain why they believe what they believe. Because sadly, most Christians, well, when people ask, why are you a Christian? Oh, I, I grew up as a Christian. That's how I was raised, man. It's like, that's the wrong answer, <laughs> right? You don't want that as your answer. You want your answer to be grounded on something that is that that you say, I believe, for me, I believe the Bible because I've personally seen God work in my life and I count that as evidence. And the second piece is all the other evidence I mentioned earlier, the historical, philosophical, and scientific evidence that backs this up. That's why I believe. I am persuaded, I am convinced that the Bible is true, right? And we want our, and that's where we should all be, right? We want to be able to give an answer to those who ask for hope for the reason that we have. You know, we want to be able to do that, to give a reason, to give a defense. So anyway, I am getting off track, so I need to get back into my <laughs> Um The changing culture is targeting your children. Uh, in fact, just uh, not too long ago, a couple months ago, there was a gay man's choir in San Francisco that even sang a song on how they're coming for your children. Um, the people changing our culture control the media, and they control the education system. And history shows us that when you control those two things... It's only a matter of time till the revolution manifests itself till it, it just reveals itself it's there. nothing you can do about it you can't go back right? When you control the media and entertainment or in uh, education it's only a matter of time till it's game over <laughs> right um, Hitler, When Hitler came to power, his two primary means of changing the German culture or through really just brainwashing them was through having control over the media where the media wouldn't report what would happen. They would report and then tell you what you should think about it and give you, here, this is your opinion. This is what you ought to think, right? Um, They would do that, which is propaganda. And so that was one way. And then the education system, the schools, the colleges, right, where they would indoctrinate these uh, beliefs, the the beliefs of the Nazi party into, and that's how they would raise them up. And they would train them up in the Nazi party's beliefs. And that's how the German culture was flipped upside down. Like that, and people wondered what happened, (laughs) you know. And of course, there's other factors that could that also contribute to what happened. Um, But those are the two biggest things. And right now, we see that our media, when they all say the same exact thing, that should raise an eyebrow, right? That should red flag should be going up when they're all sounding exactly the same, and they all have the same opinions, and they all have the same, right? Someone's controlling the media, and our education system clearly colleges, high schools, and middle schools, even elementary schools. You're seeing all these false teachings, these lies that are just being shoved down these, these, their throats. At the age of kindergarten. If you want to train, if you won't train your child, I'll tell you this, that the world will train your child. And let's say you do train your child, let's say you do train your child, but if you're a hypocrite, it won't matter. <laughs> One of the biggest reasons a youth leaves the faith is when they see and smell the awful reek of hypocrisy from their parents. Too many parents fail to actively live out the biblical worldview. They see their parents go to church either often or not so often, but when they go home, they live in a way that contradicts the Bible. Your first grader will pick up on this. They're smarter than you think. They'll read their Bible and say, hey, Bible says this, Bible says that, but my mom and dad, they do this. And the Bible says this, right? They start to question, and then they begin. In all a matter of time, to when they're older, by the time they're in middle school is when they pretty much make up their mind, and they're just like, "Eh, I don't really believe in this Bible thing anymore." They're just checked out because they've seen people that say they believe it, but they don't believe it <laughs> with their actions, right? And you ha- actions is everything, right? That's the, that's proof that you believe what you believe. Because if you if I were to jump in in the ocean and Let's say I believe in sharks or something, or I don't know, this is a bad analogy, but <laughs> let's say I jump in the ocean and, uh, and um, let's say that um, I don't, let's say I do believe in sharks, but then I go in and I, I put like fish stuff all over me to make me smell like a fish, I look like a fish, I smell like a fish, I act like a fish, right? My actions don't match my belief because if I believe that there were sharks in the water, I would not do that, right? So when you believe something, your beliefs have to match, your your actions have to match that because otherwise you don't believe it if you're you're actually not living it out. Your first grader will pick up on it. And again, I'm not saying you have to be perfect because you won't be. No one is perfect but Christ. And so you're going to make mistakes as a parent. You will. You will make lots of mistakes because you're human. And so when that happens, go to your child and say, look, I messed up. I'm sorry. I said, the Bible says do this, but I didn't do that. And I'm asking for your forgiveness. I ask for God's forgiveness. Show them what repentance looks like, right? Show them what it looks like to repent. To turn, when repent means to turn from your sin and to turn to the Savior. Show them, train them. That's part of the training. As a parent, you must actively and literally train your child or the world will train them and use them against you. And verse 24 says that truth, the truth that you heard from the beginning, let it abide in you and you also will abide in the son and the father also. Verse 25, verse 25. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Remember, whoever believes in him that's not just a head thing. Oh, I believe that intellectually. We're talking about your, an action, something that is based on actions. You have to commit to it. This is a commitment to Christ because you're receiving that gift of forgiveness. And when that happens, when you're truly saved, if, if you're truly saved, the Holy Spirit comes in you, right? And what happens is John 3 explains, you're born again. You're brand new. You're a whole new creation. And so now you're living differently. Now you don't want to live the way you used to live. You want to live this new life that God is prepared for you. Verse 26. These things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. People will try to deceive you always. Like that's just the the reality of things. This is part of the warfare we we deal with, but those who are anointed, those who are set apart by God, will know the truth from the lie. Verse 28, and now little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If we find ourselves abiding in him or having fellowship with him, we can have confidence, that certainty, and not be ashamed before him when he comes back for us. Everyone who practices righteousness, He says is, um, oh, sorry, verse 29. Let me read verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. So everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. We just read that. They are a child of God. Not that you must practice righteousness to be his child, when we believe and put our trust in him, that he is the only one who can, can and has forgiven our sins, we are born again. And then because of that, we now go on to practice righteousness. So you're not practicing righteousness so you can be saved, right? We're practicing righteousness because we've been saved, right? Because a lot of people are bent on this work-based uh, system, right? Roman Catholicism, Jehovah Witness, Mormonism. It's all about works. I got to be good enough. I got to do things. I got to, in order to, and then, and then maybe I'll get to heaven, right? It's not what you can do. There's nothing you can do. Romans is crystal clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, you, me, everyone, the whole planet, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 though, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Romans 5, 8, Right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or it actually says, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans ten nine, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will be a child of God at that point. Chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of god therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him think about that what an amazing thing that god would call us his children even while we rebelled and spat in his face for those of us who he has redeemed those who have been born of god those are his children because there's a big misconception people say oh we're all god's children like the whole world every, every human is a child of god that's not true that's not biblical um and so uh John even says it right here. Um, Everyone who practices righteousness is born of him, right? And not not self-righteousness, right? This is all because of what his righteousness. Again, we have no righteousness. All right, Isaiah says, the very best possible, most righteous thing we can muster is filthy, bloody rags, right? That's man's righteousness, which is not righteousness, (laughs) right? We are entirely dependent on the righteousness of Christ, And so not everyone's a child of God, only those who he has redeemed, only those who put their faith in him and trust in him and have asked for forgiveness. Verse two, chapter three. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we read that, to all who have this hope, this faith in him, how he's forgiven our sins on the cross and how he rose from the dead, that's what makes us pure. His sacrifice on the cross is what atones for our sins. So because of his sacrifice on the cross, God sees us as pure. Not because of anything we have done. We didn't do, again, we didn't do anything for salvation, nothing, It is because of God's love and faithfulness to us that he laid down his own life and took the punishment we deserved. God, the creator of the universe, died in your place, in my place. He rose again, and now you and I can be with him since my sins are forgiven, because God can't have sin in his presence, right? God is a God of justice. God has to execute justice, right? So when Humanity fell into sin all the way back at the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. There's this problem because God loves His creation, but now His own creation has sinned and rebelled and spat in His face and said, "Not nah, God, we don't want you." Right? And now God is like, "I, I love them, but now my the, the, justice is a part of His nature. It requires Him to execute justice." So what happens? Right? What is happens? God comes up with the most brilliant plan that ever was. Because there's no, for a while, all the Old Testament, they had animals die in their place. It was a temporary covering that would cover their sins temporarily because they had to do it all, you know, frequently, once a year. But those are just animals. They can't do anything. No other human can do that because we're mere mortals. The only possible way that sins that man's sins can be completely wiped away, completely forgiven, is for God himself to come as a human himself, lay down his own life for his own creation that spits in his face, that rejects him every day, for him to lay down his life. God, the creator, the one who made the planets and stars and galaxies billions of light years away, the one who holds the foundations of the worlds up, this majestic being is the one who laid his own life down for you and me, a rebellious and stubborn sinner. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5, 8. That is the gospel. And when we say, yes, God, I, Lord, I want to be forgiven. I know I'm a sinner. I have rebelled against you. God, please forgive me and I will follow you the rest of my days. When you make that commitment, you're saved. You're a child of God at that point. And now you have this new life to begin because you've been forgiven. You don't have the weight of sin that's crushing you. That weight's been gone. It's been forgiven. It's gone. God doesn't, When God sees you, he sees you as pure, just as he is pure. That's what we just read. Not because we did anything. It's because of what he did. Let's pray. God, we uh, come before you and we thank you, God, for the gift of salvation. We thank you that we get to be called children of God. We are your children because of what you did, not because of what we did. We were trapped in the mud, drowning in the weight of our own sins, and you came and pulled us out, cleaned us up, wiped us, and you've forgiven us of all our sins against you. You're amazing, Lord. And God, I pray for anyone in this room, maybe they aren't saved, maybe they don't know you, maybe they want to know you, God. Give them that desire for you. Grant them repentance, Lord, that they would turn from their sin and turn to you, turn to the Savior. God, I pray for them that they would come and accept you this night, that they would leave this campus different, Lord. I pray for the rest of us who are saved that we also would leave this campus different, Lord. We wanna be more like you, as we just read. When you return, we'll be like you. And God, we want to be more like you. We want to be more loving. We want to be selfless. We want to be like you, but we know we have this sin nature. It's still on us. We have these bodies of flesh and we still sin from time to time. Maybe, Lord, maybe one of us in here have backslidden. Maybe we've rebelled for a time, Lord. I pray that you would restore them, bring them back to you, God, that you would grant them repentance and that they can start afresh, walking in the newness of God, Lord. We just thank you for who you are, God. We thank you for being so good to us. We pray over uh, all the things going on in our nation. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan that are being persecuted right now, that are being killed for their faith. We pray for the missionaries that are there, those who have children. Lord, we pray for them, God, that you give them boldness and strength, Lord. We pray for also the other Christians and brothers and sisters in Christ that are in other countries that are being killed for their faith, where it's illegal to be a Christian. We pray that you would strengthen them, God, Lord. Help us to remember them in their chains as your word says. God, we thank you for being so good to us. We just pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.